Chapter Nine of Colonel Quaritch, V.C. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Colonel Quaritch, V.C. by H. Ryder Haggart, Chapter Nine: The Shadow of Ruin. Mr. Quest departed to his vestry meeting with a smile upon his thin, gentlemanly-looking face and with a rage and bitterness in his heart. "'I caught her that time,' he said to himself. "'She can do a good deal in the way of deceit, but she can't keep the blood out of her cheeks when she hears that fellow's name. How she did colour up, to be sure. But she is a clever woman, Belle is. How well she managed that little business about the luncheon, and how well she fought her case when once she caught me in a cleft stick about Edith and that money of hers, and made good terms, too.' Ah, that's the worst of it. She has the whip-hand of me there. If I could ruin her, she could ruin me. And it's no use cutting off one's nose to spite your face. But, ah, uh, my fine lady, he went on, with an ominous flash of his grey eyes, I shall have you yet. Give you enough rope, and you will hang yourself. You will love this fellow, I know that. And it will go hard if I can't make him break your heart for you. Bah! You don't know the sort of stuff men are made of. If only I did not happen to be in love with you myself, I should not care. If, ah, oh, here I am at the church. The human animal is a very complicated machine, and can conduct the working of an extraordinary number of different interests and sets of ideas, almost, if not entirely, simultaneously. For instance, Mr. Quest, seated at the right hand of the rector in the vestry room, of the beautiful old Boisingham Church, and engaged in an animated and even warm discussion with the senior curate on the details of the fourteenth-century church work, in which he clearly took a lively interest, and understood far better than did the curate, would have been exceedingly difficult to identify with the scheming, vindictive creature whom we have just followed up the church path. But, after all, that is the way of human nature— although it may not be the way of those who try to draw it, and who love to paint the villain black as your hat, and the virtuous heroine so radiant that you begin to fancy you hear the whispering of her wings. Few people are altogether good or altogether bad. Indeed, it is probable that the vast majority are neither good nor bad. They have not the strength to be either the one or the other. Here and there, however, one does meet with a spirit with sufficient will and originality to press the scale down this way or that. Though, even when the opposing force, be it good or evil, is constantly striving to bring the balance equal, even the most wicked men have their redeeming points and their righteous instincts, nor are their thoughts continually fixed upon iniquity. Mr. Quest, for instance, one of those evil geniuses of this history, was, where his plots and passions were not immediately concerned, a man of eminently generous and refined tendencies. Many were the good turns, contradictory as it may seem, that he had done to his poorer neighbours. He had even been known to forego his bills of costs, which is about the highest and rarest exhibition of earthly virtue that can be expected from a lawyer. He was, moreover, eminently a cultured man, a reader of the classics in translations, if not in the originals, a man with a fine taste in fiction and poetry, and a really sound and ripe archaeological knowledge, 
especially where sacred buildings were concerned. All his instincts, moreover, were toward respectability. His most burning ambition was to secure a high position in the county in which he lived, and to be classed among the resident gentry. He hated his lawyer's work, and longed to accumulate sufficient means to be able to give it the good-bye, and to indulge himself in an existence of luxurious and learned leisure. Such as he was, he had made himself, for he was the son of a poor and inferior country dentist, and had begun life with a good education, it is true, which he chiefly owed, however, to his own exertions, but with nothing else. Had his nature been a temperate nature, with a balance of good to its credit to draw upon, instead of a balance of evil, he was a man who might have gone very far indeed, for in addition to his natural ability he had a great power of work. But unfortunately this was not the case. His instincts on the whole were evil instincts, and his passions, whether of hate or love or desire or greed, when they seized him, did so with extraordinary violence, rendering him, for the time being, utterly callous to the rights or feelings of others, provided that he attained his end. In short, had he been born to a good position and large fortune, it is quite possible, providing always that his strong passions had not at some period in his life led him irremediably astray, that he would have lived virtuous and respected, and died in good order, leaving behind him a happy memory. But fate had played him in antagonism with the world, and yet had endowed him with a gnawing desire to be of the world as it appeared most desirable to him. And then, to complete his ruin, fate had thrown him into temptations from which inexperience and the headlong strength of his passions gave him no opportunity to escape. It may at first appear strange that a man so calculating and whose desires seemed to be fixed upon such a material end as the acquirement of wealth which he coveted, by artifice or even fraud, should also nourish in his heart so bitter a hatred and so keen a thirst for revenge upon a woman who had been unfaithful to him, as Mr. Quest undoubtedly did, toward his beautiful wife. It would have seemed more probable that he would have left heroics alone and attempted to turn his wife's passion into a means of wealth and self-advancement, and this would no doubt have been so had his wife's estimate of his motives in marrying her been an entirely correct one. She had told her lover, it will be remembered, that her husband had married her for her money, the ten thousand pounds of which he stood so badly in need. Now this was the truth to a certain extent, and a certain extent only. He had wanted the ten thousand pounds, in fact, at the moment money was necessary to him. But, and this his wife had never known or realized, he had been, and still was, also in love with her. Possibly the ten thousand pounds would have proved a sufficient inducement to him, without the passion. But the passion was none the less there. Their relations, however, had never been happy ones. She had detested him from the first, and had not spared to say so. No man with any refinement, and whatever he lacked, Mr. Quest had refinement, could bear to be thus continually repulsed by a woman, and so it came to pass that their relations had always been of the most strained nature. Then, when she at last had obtained the clue to the secret of his life, under threat of exposure she drove her bargain, 
of which the terms were complete separation in all but outward form and virtual freedom of action for herself this considering the position she was perhaps justified in doing but her husband never forgave her for it more than that he determined if by any means it were possible to turn the passion which although she did not know it he was perfectly aware she bore toward his business superior edward cossey to a refined instrument of vengeance against her with what success it will be one of the purposes of his history to show such were put as briefly as possible the outlines of the character and aims of this remarkable and contradictory man whose history had he but possessed a sense of honour might very probably have been painted in very different colours within an hour and a half of leaving his own house the oaks as it was called although the trees from which it had been so named had long since vanished from the garden mr quest was bowling swiftly behind edward cossey's powerful bay horse toward the towering gateway of honham castle when he was within three hundred yards he pulled the horse up sharply for he was a good whip and alone in the dog-cart and paused to admire the view what a beautiful place he reflected to himself with enthusiasm and how grandly those old towers stand out against the sky the old squire has restored them very well too there is no doubt about it i could not have done it better myself i wonder if that place will ever be mine things look black now but they may come round and i think i am beginning to see my way and then he started the horse on again slowly reflecting on the unpleasant nature of the business before him personally he rather liked and respected the old squire and he certainly pitied him though he would no more have dreamed of allowing his liking and pity to interfere with the prosecution of his schemes than an ardent sportsman would dream of not shooting pheasants because he happened to take a friendly interest in their nature he had a certain gentlemanlike distaste to being the bearer of crushing bad news for mr quest disliked scenes possibly because he had such an intimate personal acquaintance with them whilst he was still wondering how he might best deal with the matter he passed over the moat and through the ancient gateway which he admired so fervently and found himself in front of the hall door here he pulled up looking about for somebody to take his horse when suddenly the squire himself emerged upon him with a rush his pen in his hand for he had been writing letters and his white hair waving on the breeze. "'Hello, Quest, is that you?' he shouted, as though his visitor had been fifty yards off instead of five. "'I have been looking out for you. Here, William, William,' crescendo. "'William!' fortissimo. "'Where on earth is that boy? I expect that idle fellow George has been sending him on some of his errands instead of attending to them himself. Whenever he has wanted to take a horse, he is nowhere to be found. And then it is—' please sir mr george that's what he calls him please sir mr george sent me up to the moat farm or somewhere to see how many eggs the hens laid last week or something of that sort that's a very nice horse you have got there by the way very nice indeed it is not my horse mr de la mole said the lawyer with a faint smile it is mr edward cossey's oh it's mr edward cossey's is it answered the old gentleman with a sudden change of voice ah mr edward cossey's well it is a very good horse anyhow and i suppose that mr cossey can afford to buy good horses 
Just then a faint cry of, "'Coming, sir! Coming!' was heard, and a long, hobbledehoy kind of youth, whose business it was to look after the not-extensive castle stables, emerged in a great heat around the corner of the house. "'Now where on earth have you been?' began the squire, in a stentorian tone. "'If you please, sir, Mr. George.' "'There, what did I tell you?' broke in the squire. "'Have I not told you time after time that you are to mind your own business and leave Mr. George to mind his? Now take that horse to the stables and see that it is properly fed.' "'Come in, Quest, come in. We have a quarter of an hour before luncheon and can get our business over.' And he led the way into the tapestried and panelled vestibule where he took up his stand before the empty fireplace. Mr. Quest followed him, stopping ostensibly to admire a particularly beautiful suit of armour which hung upon the wall, but really to gain another moment for reflection. "'A beautiful suit of the early Stuart period, Mr. de la Mole, he said. "'I never saw a better.' "'Yes, yes, that belonged to old Sir James, the one whom the roundheads shot.' "'What?' "'The Sir James who hid the treasure?' "'Yes. I was telling that story to our new neighbour, Colonel Quaritch, last night. A very nice fellow, by the way. You should go and call upon him.' "'I wonder what he did with it,' said Mr. Quest. "'Ah, and so do I, and so will many another, I dare say. I wish that I could find it, I'm sure. It's wanted badly enough nowadays, but that reminds me, Quest.' You will have gathered my difficulty from my note, and what George told you. You see, this man Janter has, thanks to that confounded fellow Major Boston, and his action about those college lands, thrown up the moat farm, and George tells me that there is not another tenant to be had for love or money. In fact, you know what it is. One can't get tenants nowadays. They simply are not to be had. Well... Under these circumstances, there is, of course, only one thing to be done that I know of, and that is to take the farm in hand and farm it myself. It is quite impossible to let the place fall out of cultivation, and that is what would happen otherwise, and if I were to lay it down in grass, it would cost a considerable sum, and be seven or eight years before I got any return. The squire paused, and Mr. Quest said nothing. Well, he went on, that being so, the next thing to do is to obtain the necessary cash to pay Janter his valuation and stock the place. About four thousand would do it. Or perhaps, he added, with an accent of general confidence, we had better say five. There are about fifty acres of those low-lying meadows which want to be thoroughly bush-drained. Bushes are quite as good as pipes for that stiff land. If they put it in the right sort of stuff, it doesn't cost half so much. But still it can't be done for nothing. And then there's a new wagon-shed wanted, and some odds and ends. Yes, we had better say five thousand. Still Mr. Quest made no answer, so once more the squire went on. Well, you see, under these circumstances, not being able to lay hands upon the necessary capital from my private resources, of course I have made up my mind to apply to Cosy and Son for the loan. Indeed, considering how long and intimate the connection between their houses and the de la Mole family, I think it right and proper to do so. Indeed, I should consider it very wrong of me if I neglected to give them the opportunity of the investment. Here a faint smile flickered for an instant on Mr. Quest's face, and then went out. 
of course they will as a matter of business require security and very properly so but as this estate is unentailed there will fortunately be very little difficulty about that you can draw up the necessary deeds and i think that under the circumstances the right thing to do would be to charge the moat farm specifically with the amount things are bad enough no doubt but i can hardly suppose it possible under any conceivable circumstances that the farm would not be good for five thousand pounds however they might possibly prefer to have a general clause as well and if that is so although i consider it quite unnecessary i shall raise no objection to that of course then at last mr quest broke his somewhat ominous silence i am very sorry to say mr de la mole he said gently that i can hold out no prospect of cosy and son being induced under any circumstances to advance another pound upon the security of the Honham Castle estates. Their opinion of the value of landed property as security has received so severe a shock that they are not at all comfortable as to the safety of the amount already invested. Mr. de la Mole started when he heard this most unexpected bit of news, for which he was totally unprepared he had always found it possible to borrow money and it had never occurred to him that a time might perhaps come in this country when the land which he held in almost superstitious veneration would be so valueless a form of property that lenders would refuse it as security why he said recovering himself the total encumbrances on the property do not amount to more than twenty five thousand pounds and when i succeeded to my father forty years ago it was valued at fifty and the castle and premises have been thoroughly repaired since then at a cost of five thousand and most of the farm buildings also very possibly mr de la mole but to be honest i much doubt if honham castle and the lands round it would now fetch twenty five thousand pounds on a forced sale competition and radical agitation have brought estates down more than people realize and land in Australia and New Zealand is worth as much per acre as cultivated lands in England. Perhaps, as a residential property, and on account of its historical interest, it might fetch more, but I doubt it. In short, Mr. de la Mole, so anxious are Cosy and Son in the matter that I regret to have to tell you that so far from being willing to make a further advance, the firm has formally instructed me to serve the usual six months' notice on you, calling in the money already advanced on mortgage together with the interest which i must remind you is nearly a year overdue and this step i propose to take to-morrow the old gentleman staggered for a moment and caught at the mantelpiece for the blow was a heavy one and as unexpected as it was heavy but he recovered himself in an instant for it was one of the peculiarities of his character that his spirits always seemed to rise to the occasion in the face of urgent adversity. In short, he possessed an extraordinary share of moral pluck. Indeed, he said indignantly, indeed it is a pity that you did not tell me that at once, Mr. Quest. It would have saved me from putting myself in a false position by proposing a business arrangement which is not acceptable. As regards the interest, I must admit that it is as you say, and I very much regret it. That stupid fellow George is always so dreadfully behindhand with his accounts that I can never get anything settled. He did not state, and indeed did not know, 
that the reason the unfortunate George was behind hand was that there was no accounts to make up, or rather that they were all on the wrong side of the ledger. I will have that matter seen to at once. Of course, business people are quite right to consider their due, and I do not blame Messrs. Causey in the matter, not in the least. Still, I must say that, considering the long and intimate relationship that has for nearly two centuries existed between their house and my family, they might, well, have shown a little more consideration. Yes, said Mr. Quest, I dare say that the step strikes you as a harsh one. To be perfectly frank with you, Mr. Delamont, it struck me as a very harsh one. But, of course, I am only a servant and bound to carry out my instructions. I sympathize with you very much very much indeed oh don't do that said the old gentleman of course other arrangements must be made and much as it will pain me to terminate my connections with messrs causey they shall be made but i think went on the lawyer without any notice of his interruption that you misunderstand the matter a little causey and son are only a trading corporation whose object to make money by lending it or otherwise at all hazards make money the kind of feeling that you allude to and that might induce them in consideration of long intimacy and close connection in the past to forego the opportunity of so doing and even to run a risk of loss is a thing which belongs to former generations which whatever their failings were very often generous in their dealings and allowed their business to be sometimes conducted upon personal rather than commercial principles but the present is a strictly commercial age and we are the most commercial of the trading nations. Causey and son move with the times, that is all, and they would rather sell up a dozen families which had dealt with them for two centuries than lose five hundred pounds, provided, of course, that they could do so without a scandal and loss of general respect, which, where a banking-house is concerned, also means a loss of custom. I am a great lover of the past myself, and to believe that our ancestors' ways of doing business were, on the whole, better and more charitable than ours. But I have to make my living, and take the world as I find it, Mr. de la Mole. Quite so, Quest, quite so, answered the squire quietly. I had no idea that you looked at these matters in such a light. Certainly the world has changed a good deal since I was a young man, and I do not think it has changed much for the better." but you will want your luncheon. It is hungry work talking about foreclosures. Mr. Quest had not used this unpleasant word, but the squire had seen his drift. Come into the next room. And he led the way into the drawing-room, where Ida was sitting, reading the times. Ida, he said, with an affection and heartiness, which did not, however, deceive his daughter, who knew how to read every change of her father's face. Here is Mr. Quest. Take him into luncheon, my dear. I will come presently. I want to finish a note. Then he returned to the vestibule and sat down in his favorite old oak chair. Ruined, he said to himself. I can never get the money as things are, and there will be a foreclosure. Well, I am an old man, and I hope I shall not live to see it. But there is Ida, poor Ida. I cannot bear to think of it. And the old place, too after all these generations, after all these generations. End of chapter 9